Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, when it comes to your end game, what's your highest priority? Do you want to maximize your personal wealth and walk away? Or do you want to de-risk but keep some chips on the table? Or is your highest priority protecting your culture, employees, and legacy you have built? If your goal is to protect your culture, then selling to an individual investor may be worth considering. Now, in this episode of Built Sell Radio, you're going to hear from Carl Allen, who's a former guest and HP executive responsible for acquiring companies for the tech giant. These days, Carl now teaches individual investors how to buy their first business. You'll get inside the mind of the individual investors Carl coaches to understand how they structure acquisition offers, and you'll discover the telltale signs that an individual investor is either going to honor or ruin your company's legacy. Without further ado, here is Carl Allen. Enjoy. Carl Allen, welcome back to Built the Cell Radio. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here again. 2018 was the last time we met. You regaled us of the story of buying a struggling business 48 hours to make a decision. I encourage folks to listen to that episode because it was a a great value creation story. Um, what have you been up to since? What's been going on? Oh, did loads and loads of things. Obviously, like the rest of the world kind of went through COVID. Um, but um, yeah, I've been building my own uh, coaching company on how to buy businesses that's growing like crazy. And that I'm doing a couple of big roll-ups right now. I'm doing a big roll-up in the health and beauty um, sector for women. Uh, we've, we've raised about $100 million. Um, so almost like a PE company, we're, we're buying these, these e-com brands. And then I'm doing a roll-up as well in the coaching space. So I took my own company, Dealmaker Well Society, and then I've been buying other similar coaching businesses that, that fit the same customer avatar. So I bought a real estate coaching company called Partner Driven. I bought a uh, an entrepreneur business growth coaching company called Authentic Conversion. Uh, I bought a sales training company called Win at Sales. And uh, we're just combining them all together because, as you know, in a roll-up, if you've got a, a kind of mutually exclusive customer with different products and brands, you can cross-sell them. And then, you know, you can leverage different superpowers from the businesses you buy and then obviously take out duplicate costs and and drive drive cash flow. So uh, so that's what I'm doing. So I'm your classic business buyer and business buyer teacher. I probably spend two thirds of my time doing deals as a buyer, I'm not a seller, I'm a buyer. And then a third of my time coaching my own community, uh, you know, how to find deals, how to raise capital and, and how to how to truly vet and understand deals from a valuation perspective. Got it. So let's walk into this uh, wearing two hats. I'd love to first have you wear the hat of a teacher and instructor on on what you teach people about buying a company. Yeah. And then I may at the end have you a couple of questions for you on on sort of how you approach your roll ups. Uh, yeah. But I'd love to start off with sort of what you know you you teach. Um, so maybe start with. What the typical profile of somebody who you're teaching? Like, yeah. what do they look like? So, they so there's primarily three customer avatars that that come into my my world. Um, they're either you know W twos 
that, um, you know, kind of managerial level, probably six figures a year in income. And they, they want to, they want to own their own business and they want to buy a business, not start a business. So these people are very strong. Technically, they're very strong within the niche, uh, but they don't understand the art and the science of, of, of buying a company, right? So that's avatar number one. Avatar number two would be a business owner that owns a company that wants to grow via acquisition. Um, and again, they're very good at running their business, but they don't understand the mechanics of you know, how to buy a business, how to integrate it with what they've already got. And then the third avatar would be a real estate investor. So um, we've had a lot of real estate investors come into our world in the last couple of years. I think as the real estate market has dried up a little bit, I think those investors are looking to diversify more into business acquisitions because I think a lot of their skill sets are transferable, how to scout deals, how to raise money, how to negotiate, um, how to project manage a transaction. They're able to leverage those skills. So, so those are the three typical types of, of people that, that come into my world. What's the difference between the W-2-6, and I should define W-2 for those who are listening outside in the United States. This is a, a, a way to characterize an employed person. Uh, you know, works for a company, makes six figures. Uh, what's the difference between, in your experience, an employee and an entrepreneur? Because it sounds like you've taught both of them. Yeah. So I, I think I think with an employee, an employee is somebody that's obviously in, in a probably a much more comfortable position. They, you know, they're earning whatever salary they're earning. They're doing whatever job that that, that, that they do, right? And then often it's a challenge for those people because. They don't want to quit the, the full-time job to then go and spend two, three, four, six months to go through the process of, of, of buying a company. Some businesses you can buy very quickly, but most businesses you're raising some capital and it, and it takes time. So those people typically have challenges around kind of time management and being able to kind of generate the additional time they need to go through the process of not only learning how to buy a business, but then actually doing the work to get the deal done. Uh, what I found with entrepreneurs is often most of the people that come into my world that are entrepreneurial, they've started a company and failed, right? Which you know most most entrepreneurs do, right? They 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 go in, they they have the entrepreneurial seizure, they 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 decide to start a company and it, and it doesn't work, right? For all the reasons we know about. Um, so then these people are burned and they realize that what they should have done in the first instance was actually buy an existing company that's got the cash flow, the customers, the employees, and, and the reputation in the market. Um, so, and, and they could typically deploy a lot more of their time and energy because they're not doing anything else. So, so that, that's the kind of real main difference. What I also found with entrepreneurs, um, they'll take more calculated risks. They'll typically put most of they'll, they'll put their own capital into deals, whereas W twos or full time employees maybe not. They'll you know let's say they go and buy a business uh, via the SBA and they've got to put ten percent down as the buyer. Uh, I find with a lot of employ a uh, lot of employees they don't want to use their own money. Uh, they will go and they'll find an investor uh, that will invest alongside them and, and they'll. Um, They'll, they'll share the ownership of the business. How does that work when you don't want to put your own money up? Let's let's use round numbers. And, and for the sake of this conversation, I'd like to zero in on companies that are 
are are valued at kind of between say two and five million dollars. That's the oh. kind of universe that that I want to speak. That's about. where I play, Jim. Yeah. Okay. Great. So we're we're talking about sort of quality Main Street companies uh, to use a business broker euphemism, and they are they're in that in that range. You mentioned the WT employee, you know, wants to buy a business, but they don't want to put their own capital at risk. So yeah. let's say that, you know, the, the value of the business, we all agree is $5 million. Yeah. How would they structure that yeah. without putting their own money at, at risk? Yeah. So, so, to, so it depends on, and I'm going to say something to you now that you might find very, very strange, but, but there are some sellers in the marketplace that actually don't want to sell and get the majority of their cash at, at closing. They, they prefer income versus capital gains. So I'd say one out, one out of every seven to 10 cases, you'll have a seller that wants a quick deal, wants very light touch due diligence, uh, doesn't want the brain damage of having to go through that process and would prefer income over capital gain. So on those deals, that $5 million deal, um, you might agree a structure where if it's, five, if it's a $5 million deal, let, let's say it's doing a million dollars a year of SDE and you're buying it at a five times multiple. Um, SDE for folks listening is seller's discretionary earnings, which is an expression of profit that tries to yeah. capture all the economic benefit the owner derives from the company. Yeah. So let, let's say a million dollars of that, you're, you're paying a five times multiple for that, for that business. Uh, the seller might say to you, hey, well, why don't you pay me over 10 years? Give me $500,000 a year times 10. Uh, I'm still going to have a lien over the company. I'm going to want a performance guarantee from you. I'm going to want access to the bank account and the, and the accounts. Uh, but we'll do that deal. But that's a rarity. What most people would do in a situation like that is they would go to a bank and they would get a loan, typically under the SBA 7A loan scheme. So that's... Uh, most people think, John, that the SBA is a bank. It's, it's not. So what, um, so we all put money into banks, whether it's Wells Fargo or Chase or whoever. And then they pay us half a percent in interest. The bank can then take our money. And we know banks multiply money through the overnight banking markets, but the bank can invest that money into a transaction. And the, the federal government through the SBA, the Small Business Administration, will guarantee 80% of that capital. So it's a very low risk strategy for a bank to deploy capital into acquisitions. And you can also use SBA money to grow a business, but you can also use it for, for acquisitions. My students are doing those deals like literally every day. And, it's and just to be clear on, on the SBA deals, that's a US uh, structure. Correct. Uh, and there are other jurisdictions with similar arrangements. Uh, Carl, I don't know if you're familiar with what how it works in the UK, for example. Yeah, that's correct. So Canada's got its own version where you are. The UK's got its own version. But but um, the SBA in America is for American companies that you're buying um, with American citizens or green card holders, although they allow 49% of the ownership to be held by um non-US citizens. So even though I spend a lot of time in the US, which is where I am now, I'm not a citizen or a permanent resident. And, and I've, I've done lots of SBA deals with, with partners, right? But the way an SBA deal typically works is on average, um, you're putting down out of that 5 million deal, 
you're putting down 10% um, as the buyer's equity. So that'll be $500,000. There'd be 80%, which would be the SBA loan. So that would go in uh, at about 8, 9% over a 10-year amortization. And then the final $500,000 would be a seller note where the seller is carrying back a little bit of the deal. Um, and there's loads of rules around standby and, and how that seller note amortizes. But typically it's a 10, 8 to 10 deal structure. Um, but what's happened in the last, uh, kind of seven or eight months, like since COVID, the SBA has become a lot more flexible with buyers and how they could deploy those funds. So historically, if I wanted to do an SBA deal, I personally had to put my own capital into that deal. So that half a million dollar equity down payment, that had to be my money. The SBA would trace that. It would have to be in an account for 45 days, which they call seasoning, had to be my money. But then in May of last year, the SBA made some massive changes to the rules. Um, they allowed earnouts in deals for the very first time. They allowed sellers to stay and even retain up to 20% ownership, which was never allowed before. And they allowed owner investors to buy companies like me and even use other partners to provide the capital. So now you can use the SBA program um, without having any of your own personal capital involved, but you'd have to partner with somebody who would put that capital in and then you would share the ownership of the business with that person. So under, let's use that as an example. So let's say you get a partner uh, to kick in the 500K as the seller's equity, as the buyer's equity, excuse me. Yep. And so you're in for nothing, but you're, it's your deal. So you're not putting any capital at risk. You've got a partner involved. How would you divvy up the proceeds of that deal with that partner? It kind of depends, really. I think you, you've, got to, you've got to look at it, not just for the capital that's being deployed, but then potentially... You know, can that investor add any value to the business? Do they have a network that they can deploy? Do they have a skill set that they can deploy? Do they have experience in the market that they can deploy? So I've seen deals where it's been a 50-50 split or a 51-49. I've also seen deals where it's it's been an 80% purchase for the, the operator and a 20% uh, purchase for, for an investor. I I invested recently in um, in three SBA deals that my students have done. Uh, and I, I took between 15 and 40% of the business, depending on you know, how I could deploy my own value into that deal. So 15 to 40%. So you, in this case, this uh, hypothetical example of a $5 million deal, there's 500 grand of buyer's equity, $4 million of SBA loan, $500 of seller's, uh, equity rollover. Yeah. Um, of the five hundred dollars in buyer equity, you put up the money in this, yes. in this example. Yes. And then for that, you took, depending on the structure and how much value you were going to add between. Correct. I think you said fifteen and forty. Yeah. So I'm not getting. So when I so when I put my five hundred thousand dollars in, you could argue that's ten percent of the total deal structure. So I'm not taking ten percent equity. I want to take more than that because obviously it's my capital at risk. And my capital sits behind the bank that's got the priority lien over the business. Uh, so that, that's typically how it works. And that's exactly the same. So I'm almost like an angel investor in this deal. <clears throat> and that's exactly the same that private equity would work 
if you were doing a hundred million dollar deal and it was 80 million at closing with 20 seller financing, uh, that deal there might be uh, there might be 30 million of equity and 50 million of senior debt from a bank. The equity would always sit subordinate to to the bank debt that's going into that transaction. So it's working in exactly the same way. But once you go like SBA has a has a five million dollar uh, like lending cap, although you can go to 10 million in some cases if you use a non-bank SBA lender. Um, but but that's what's great about the SBA deals is you, you can buy like 10% is normally the maximum you, you have to put down. I've seen deals done recently where only two and a half percent had to go in as buyer's equity. And the rest was a mix of of the SBA financing plus uh, the seller carry. And my understanding is that the buyer, the the person who's structuring this deal and and putting their name against the SBA loan is signing a personal guarantee. That's correct. Yeah. So actually, anybody over a nineteen percent shareholding has to sign uh, the personal guarantee, but you can insure that. So there's a product in the United States called a surety bond, which is think of it like personal guarantee insurance. Uh, it's it's about three percent of the size of the personal guarantee, um, and it, it's paid over ten years, and the premium comes down every year as the loan get gets amortized. But but what's really interesting about the SBA is ninety two percent of all SBA deals are successful. Only eight percent of those deals get delinquent, and there's actually never been a case of uh, of the SBA or the bank calling in a personal guarantee. Um, from a borrower, because remember, you've got the 80% federal guarantee. So let's say you do a deal of 5 million, you're two years in, there's you know $3.5 million left on the loan, and the business failed for whatever reason. Um, then what would happen is the bank would, would go to the SBA and they would get the 80% loan guarantee on the original loan value. So that's why Virtually all these deals are successful and PGs don't get called in because uh, because of the way the federal guarantee works. But having said that, for an entrepreneur or a first-time business owner to be saying, hey, you've got to personally guarantee this loan, you know, that can be a thing that stops them sleeping, right? So that's why the the the, the personal guarantee insurance market, aka the surety bond market, um, allows entrepreneurs to kind of de-risk that kind of investment. How do they underwrite that? So presumably they're, they're going to look at the the, the and it's exactly the same really as the SBA would would vet a deal. So they're looking at the caliber and the skills of the buyer. Uh, are they are they from that industry? Do they have the experience, et cetera, et cetera? But then they're also going to look at the underlying you know financial performance of the business. Is it a business that's growing? Does it have good margins? Does it cash flow? Is it in a market that's ripe for expansion? And combining it with the, the quality of the buyer, does that buyer have the chops to really affect the growth and do all these different things? So and, and that underwriting process goes alongside the SBA's underwriting of, of the actual acquisition. So, so guys like State Farm, Liberty Mutual, the surety bond providers, they're looped in to that underwriting process as the bank and the SBA do the deal underwriting. So as long as the bank and the, the SBA 
sign off the deal, the surety bond provider then just goes along with it, um, which is great. It sounds almost too good to be true. Um, well, I, su- I suppose it is. Uh, but what I think it's down to, John, is in this country, and I, I think you've done a phenomenal job of changing this dynamic, right, with, with your, uh, your build to sell and, uh, and all the things that you do. But we're in a scenario now in, in this country, in, the, in America, where the, there's far too many businesses for sale than there are buyers that really understand, you know, how to do this, right? There's, there's a couple of million companies for sale, last time I checked, in all different industries. And last year, uh, according to, to BizBuySell, who were, you know, one of the, one of the country's largest online uh, brokerage uh, platforms, only about 210,000 or so businesses every year kind of change hands. So there's, there's a lot of businesses trying to sell and a lot, not enough buyers that have got access to that kind of capital or who could just rock up and sign a really, really big check. Because what I found in, uh, in the selling space, if we look at the baby boomer market, so we all know there's 10,000 of baby boomers retiring every day. Um, uh, uh, over a quarter of them own a small business. Uh, everyone talks about this multi-trillion dollar wealth transfer in the next two decades as boomers retire and they, they need to transition ownership of their companies. But a lot of those baby boomers, and I, I, I talk to these people every day because I'm, I'm always looking to buy companies. Um, a lot of them don't want to sell to like strategic buyers that have obviously capital. And they don't want to sell to financial buyers who have capital. They want to sell to individuals that can continue the culture and the legacy of the company and, and will protect the employees in the business and, and really just be that safe pair of hands that's going to take the business you know, to the next level. If you're a strategic buyer, you might get rid of the brand. You might fire some of the employees. You might change the location of the business. And you might change culturally how the business operates. Customers would get treated in a different way. Vendors would get treated in a different way. Um, some sellers don't mind about that, but some sellers do. Um, you know, I talked to a seller uh, on Monday. Uh, he he owned a CPA firm, so I'm trying to buy a CPA firm because I'm I pay so much money in CPA costs for my portfolio. And why, not, why not buy a CPA firm, right? And then, sure. So I'll save myself a bunch of money. Little vertical integration never hurts. Yeah, I'll send the CPA. And and he said to me that, you know, he said, I would never sell to a competitor. He said, I've spent more time in my business the last 20 years than I have with my own family. If 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 someone thinks I'm gonna sell my company to somebody for whatever they offer and they're gonna do whatever they want to do with it and destroy it, no way. I'd rather sell to somebody that is going to love my business. They're going to cherish it. They're going to nurture it and take it from where it's at. This is a really successful business and take it to a whole different level. And I want to cheer that person on from the sidelines. I'll help. I'll I'll stay involved. But, you know, this is my baby. And uh, I want to make sure that my baby is safe and it's cared for um, because I, I want to retire and I just don't have the energy anymore you know, to keep driving this business forward. But that's not everybody in the market. You know, there are a lot of people, like I'm buying a lot of businesses in the e-commerce space right now. So e-commerce owners, they're not retiring baby boomers. They're in their 20s and their 30s. They've started a company. 
They've got it to three, four million dollars in revenues, and they want to cash out and they want to go off and they want to do something else, right? So that's a that's a very very different conversation. They don't care who buys the business. They don't care what they do with it. They just want the highest you know amounts of money with the best terms. Um, so you know, luckily I can buy those businesses because I've raised a fund and I've got the capital you know to do those deals. But but still, I I only buy one in. 25 businesses that, that, that I buy. You know, I, I have a very specific way of, of vetting deals and really understanding valuation because I look at valuation completely differently to the rest of the world. Um, but that's just me. Tell me about it. How do, how do you think about valuation? What, yeah, your- and I think you and I had a great conversation about this when I interviewed you on my podcast. So, so most of the other people that I see in the market, they only look at valuation um, from the, the perspective of numbers, right? So they'll, they'll look at the uh, they'll look at the profitability of the business. They'll they'll recast that profitability because you know we've all every business has got two numbers, right? It's got the tax numbers and it's got the real numbers. So um, there's always a recasting process. Uh, the technical term for that is is called ad backs, right? Um, and then you've also got, you know, take backs as well, but you, you're really normalizing the profitability to affect what would be true in the change of ownership. And that's generally what most people only look at. But there's three other legs of the, of the chair that most, um, most buyers and sellers don't really think about. The first one is deal structure. So remember I talked at the start that, um, you know, if you're buying a company, if you're paying all the money at closing, or most of it at closing, uh, that's got a lower valuation than if you're doing a creative deal where you're going to pay for the business over a long period of time. So if you went, let's say you wanted to go and buy a Tesla, and you rocked up to Tesla, and you wanted to buy it there and then for cash, it would cost you $60,000. If you wanted to finance that car over seven years, you'd probably end up paying about $100,000. So if you're paying for something over a period of time, and in our case, we're using the cash flow of the business to pay the seller, you're going to have to pay a lot more money to buy the business, right? So deal structure has an impact on valuation. The third point of valuation is seller psychology. So if you're a highly motivated seller that wants to sell that company very quickly, um, you're probably going to have a lower valuation in your mind than a seller that's not motivated. Because I have this saying, every business is for sale. It's just a question of, of, of how much. So, so take um, my, my pride and joy dealmaker world society. So it's an eight-figure business with 25% margin. So it's a great business. Um, that business is not for sale. It's my legacy. It's everything I do. But if you called me up and said, hey, I'll give you a billion dollars for your company, I'm going to sell, right? So every business is for sale. It's just a question of, of price and terms. Um, so motivation to sell has a big bearing really on someone's valuation. You could have two companies that are identical financially, same product, same everything. The only difference is the owner and the owner's motivation. You could have one seller that is not motivated, having a lot of fun. One seller that's distressed, they're old, they're tired, they're sick, they could be dying, unfortunately. They've run out of ideas. 
there's a completely different valuation going on in the mind of the of the seller. And a lot of people don't figure that out. And then the fourth piece of valuation, which for me is the is the biggest thing, is, is what I what I call transfer of value, right? You can have a business that's wildly profitable, um, that's worthless. It's worth liquidation value because you can't transfer that value to to a new owner. And the way I vet these these businesses that I buy is, you know, I'll do the financial valuation first. So let's say let's take that five million dollar deal that we looked at, doing a million dollars a year in profit. We we buy it for a five times multiple, so it's a five million dollar deal. But then let's say it's in professional services, who so doesn't have a lot of assets. The, the book value of that business might only be a million dollars. So when you buy that business, you're paying $4 million extra, which we call goodwill, right? So what I do when I'm vetting a deal is I take the goodwill and I say, well, where does that goodwill come from? Well, I break it into four pillars. I call it a human capital, so the quality of the employees and the people in the business, customer capital, what's the diversification of the customer base? Do they have recurring revenue, long-term contracts? I look at uh, structural capital. So do they have systems, processes, KPIs for the business? Is the owner working in the business or are they working on the business? And then the fourth one is social capital. So what's the internal culture of the organization? And then what's the external brand and reputation and credibility and differentiation in the market? So that's how I vet the deal. And then I can calculate uh, what I think the valuation is based on how effective I can transfer that value. So two extremes. Let's say you've got a business that's got a thousand customers. They're all on recurring revenue contracts. They're all locked in. Um, you've got a, a, a business owner that doesn't work in the business. He's got a C-suite middle management layer. You've got wonderful employees. You've got great systems, processes, KPIs. You've got a fantastic internal culture and the market loves this business, right? That business would be what I call best in class. Uh, and I would pay a higher multiple for that business because my ability to extract that value and grow that value is high. Whereas on the other hand, and I'll tell you a story, I was looking at a business that works in the aerospace industry. And this was a really big business, John. This was doing $25 million in top line revenue, and it was making $3.5 million in, in profit consistently. Great business. So I went to look at the business and did my vetting and looked at all the numbers. And the owner said, so Carl, let's talk valuation. Um, what do you think my business is worth? He said, but let me tell you what my CPA has told me. My CPA has looked at the books and said, hey, you're doing 3.5 million consistently in, in, in EBITDA, which is one of the profit measures that we use. Uh, he's been online. He's looked at deal stats and pitch book. These businesses are typically selling for about an eight times multiple of that size in this market. So with, with a little bit of the surplus cash that I've got in the business, he thinks it's worth 26 to $27 million. I said, okay. He said, Carl, how much do you think the business is worth? I said, nothing, zero. It's worth liquidation value only. And he almost punched me in the mouth, right? He's like, what do you mean? Like, I've got all this EBITDA. I said, I know. 
but how many customers have you got? He said, one. I said, I know. Who owns that business? Your customer, my brother-in-law. I said, okay, do you have a contract in place for that relationship? No, I don't. Okay, and then I just found out that your brother-in-law's large company, that's your number one customer, your only customer, he's about to be sold to private equity um, in a really, really large deal. So imagine I buy your company for $26 million and then all of a sudden I'm a new owner with a, with a new customer and PE are gonna look to the market and probably shop around for, for better pricing, right? This company made um, window frames um, for the Airbus. So on an Airbus, you got aluminum window frames, this company made them, right? So, and his, the brother-in-law's company was just one in a, a big long chain of suppliers in that supply chain. So I said to him, like, your business has no value because there's so much risk around that one contract. I said, if you had a hundred customers, it would be a very, very different conversation. Um, and, and again, you know, he was the business. Even though it was a great, huge business, he was doing all the work. He was doing all the, we'd have to do his selling because his brother-in-law owned the customer. Um, so that's an extreme example. Which happened. What happened in that example? Sorry? What happened? Well, what happened? I, I don't know. I, I said, hey, I, I, I can't buy this company because of all these different reasons. Uh, and then he said, well, what about an earnout? I said, well, and an earnout, as you know, is you're paying for the business over time on, on contingent payments based on financial performance. I said, sure, but think about it, right? Think about it. If you lose that customer, your business is dead because you don't have any income to pay for your employees, your rent, your any, anything, all the administrative costs in your business. This business had a, a 215 million dollar cost base. Um, so who's gonna pay that money if you lose your only one customer? So I actually said to him, look, you, you've got a, you know, you're, you're in a risky spot. You're in a very, very difficult position. Uh, I would go and lock in a contract now before the business is sold and have your brother-in-law disclose that as part of due diligence if that's what he's gonna do. But you need to go out there pretty quickly and diversify your customer base. Otherwise, no one's going to buy your business for anywhere near the valuation that, that you've got. And, and then what happened is when, when I talk to a lot of sellers, um, when I do my vetting, I come up with my valuation. And then the seller always has what I call the heart valuation. And, and it's interesting, right? And, and I, I feel a lot of times for retiring baby boomers that they need to sell their company for a certain amount of money so that they can retire, right? But they've never done any of that financial planning. Uh, they don't know their wealth gap. You know, I met a business owner um, about three weeks ago, uh, owned a big, like, multi-industry marketing agency, big business. And he said, if I don't get $10 million for this business, I'm not going to be able to retire. Because my wealth manager said to me, it's called the rule of four. Um, you're going to make a 4% annual yield on your, on, on, on your value of, of, of your portfolio. And 95% of the seller's net worth was tied up in the value of his business, right? So he said, I need $400,000 a year pre-tax to live my life and not have to change my lifestyle. 
So I need 10 million bucks in my portfolio, then I'll make my $400,000 a year. And his business was worth about $3 million, right? So I said, but and, and he was a pretty young guy. He was like 47. I said, look, you've got time to get to $10 million, right? You don't have best-in-class margins. Uh, you don't have best-in-class transfer of value. There's a process you can go through to make your business a lot more optimized. That's A, going to help you grow your top line. B, it's going to help you grow your profit margin. And C, your business will then trade at the higher end of the range of multiples for your industry. So you're getting like a, a triple compounding of value. And, and, and I, you know, I helped him. I sat him down and I, and I worked it out with him. And it was probably a 12 to 18 month process if he executed and implemented what I told him to do to get his business to a value um, where he could sell it for what he needed to sell it for uh, that would close you know, the value gap in his retirement. Interesting. And did he listen or did he sell to somebody else? Um, I don't know. Um, I haven't heard I haven't heard from him since. So uh, this guy was in Milwaukee. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Got it. I've heard you talk about the buyer box or buy box. buy box. Can you just yeah. Can you describe what the buy box is? Yeah. So so the buy box is whether you're an individual or you're a strategic buyer. Um, it's really kind of laser focusing in on, on what your ideal uh, business acquisition you know, should look like. So the number one advice I give my individual students that are buying businesses is just stay in your lane. You know, what industries do you know? What industries do you understand? What industries can you add value to, both from a basis of your skill set, your experiences, and then potentially your network that you can plug into that deal. And so I, I have a, a student of mine, Ed, great guy. He's uh, he's one of the top enterprise salespeople for IBM. Very, very smart guy, technology focused. Came into my program and we were on a we were on a call one day, a group call. And uh, I said to him, so Ed, tell me about your buy box. I'm guessing, Ed, you're gonna be buying a, a technology business, maybe IT services, an MSP, maybe even a web design agency. You're going to stay in your lane because you're IBM, right? Everyone's going to want to talk to you because you work for IBM, right? You've got all that experience. He said, no, actually, I want to buy a vineyard. I'm like, okay, great. Well, that's interesting. Why do you want to buy a vineyard? A vineyard? He said, because I absolutely love wine. I drink wine every day. I love wine. I want to buy a vineyard. It's a passion deal for me. I said, well, that's okay. But what do you know about uh, growing wine, harvesting wine, barreling wine, selling wine. What do you know about that industry? He said, nothing. I just like drinking it. I said, well, that's all well and good, right? I said, but now you've got two problems. I said, number one, imagine you go to Napa Valley and you go and sit down with an owner of a vineyard that's selling that business. They've worked in that business 25 years. They've missed soccer games, recitals, ballet lessons. The blood, sweat, and tears has gone into this vineyard, right? Uh, they're so proud of it. Do you think they're going to sell to you if you have absolutely no idea how that business works? He said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just promote one of the employees in the business. I said, well, you got to do more than that, right? I said, if you can't 
if you don't know a market like that, just go partner with somebody. Go and find somebody that is from that world. You can buy the business together and then you can leverage that partner's, I call it gray hair, leverage that partner's gray hair and experience because that's going to help you achieve three things. Number one, it's going to help you build no like, and trust with the seller because this isn't Wall Street, John, where I came from, where it's, it's math and financial engineering. Main Street deals, businesses are bought and sold between people, right? This is a relationship business. So if you don't build no like and trust with the business owner, if they don't see you as a safe pair of hands, they're probably not going to sell to you, right? So that's the first thing. You, you've got to know your industry or partner with somebody that does. And then number two, good luck trying to raise money, either from a bank or from an investor, if you're not from that world, right? So you need to have that knowledge and experience. When you're, you're pitching an investor or a debt lender to fund your deal, <laughs> if they're not convinced you're the right buyer, they're not going to back you, right? And then the third thing is, even if you do build rapport with a, a seller, and even if you do raise the capital to do the deal, if you're not from that world, how are you going to grow and add value to the business, right? The only way to make money doing these deals is you've got to grow them and sell them, right? So like that, that business we talked about, that, that million dollar profit, $5 million deal, you go in and you do that. Uh, your goal really is can, can you double or triple that profit in the next five to 10 years? And then you'll be able to sell it for a lot more money. And that's how you're going to generate, you know, a lot of wealth from, from doing things like this. So, so staying in your lane is really, really important. That's for an individual. And then on the other side, if you're a, um, if you're an existing business owner, then, then really it's what businesses can you go and buy? That are really going to strategically move the needle in, in what you're doing. So um, I always say to business owners two things. Number one, look at what your customer base already buys that you don't provide. So let's say you're uh, an electrical contracting company. Uh, go buy a plumbing contracting company, and then you can sell electrical services to your new plumbing customers and vice versa. You get that cross sell. And what's great about that is you've got no cost of customer acquisition when you market to those customers because you own them, right? It's not like you've got to run Facebook ads or advertise in the newspaper or on the radio or do whatever. You've got zero marketing costs. So you can add more revenue to your business with zero marketing dollars. So your margins are going to go up. The other thing is uh, if you're in a business that's in a supply chain, for example, you can vertically integrate by buying a supplier or somebody else in the market where then you can capture you know, more of the profit in, in your supply chain. Um, and that's what the big guys do. So look, look at Amazon, right? Amazon, $1.7 trillion market cap. They've bought over 125 businesses in the last 20 years. So a lot of their value, a lot of the shareholder value has been driven by acquiring other companies. So do you remember when Audible came out, right? Sure. I can always I can almost imagine like Jeff Bezos is in his office one day and one of his guys comes in and says, Jeff, Jeff, major problem. Somebody's released this app called Audible and you can listen to a book while you're at the gym or walking the dog or driving your car. It's going to decimate our book sales. Like, what are we going to do? 
So Bezos didn't say, right, get the R&D guys in here, get the marketers in here, let's figure out how to build our own product. No, he just went and bought the company, right? When he realized that retail groceries was going to be the next big frontier in, in e-commerce, he didn't go and build a supermarket chain. He just went and bought Whole Foods, right? So when you own a company, you can buy whatever you want through an acquisition. You can buy more customers, buy new locations, buy more revenue, buy more cash flow, buy more IP. You can acquire all those different things. Um, Facebook. Facebook realized years and years ago, oh, there's this crazy thing out there called Instagram, right? All that's where all the cool kids are hanging out. And they're, they're taking our taking our members away from us, and that's going to hurt our, our advertising revenue. Did they figure out how to go and build that? No, they just went and bought Instagram, right? Um, so all the big companies in the world, and this is the world I came from, actually. I was a corporate M&A guy, um, you know, Hewlett-Packard. That was my last real job about 15 years ago. I was going out buying companies for HP um, because HP didn't have the time or the skills to develop these businesses themselves, they were able to leverage their capital to be able to go out and buy these businesses and then integrate them in, into you know, Hewlett Packard. So interesting. So I love where you've distinguished between the deals you do and the other types of buyers out there because you know, I think about the types of buyers, and I know this is a broad generalization, but you know, on one end of the spectrum, there are the strategic acquirers like HP, where they have a, a specific rationale for buying a business, usually investment sort of thesis that they've got. Then there's the private equity group that uh, you know is using a bit of debt to amp up their returns and 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 maybe gets the owner to roll some equity. And then you've got these individual buyers that you coach and and mentor, yeah. where the owner likes the sound of that because they're not doing business with Darth Vader. Like they're, they're, it's another person. They can look into the whites of their eyes and they can, they, they, they know who they're dealing with. Um, so I'd love to just kind of explore that a little bit. Cause I think the other two we've done a, over, over the last few months, we've done, you know, some episodes with people. We did, uh, one recently with Adam coffee. You talked about the private equity playbook. I love Adam strategic, Great. Yeah. We, we've done some strategic conversations. So I'd love to just, dig in a little bit more on these individual investors. So if you're listening, if, you know, if my listeners are sitting there saying, yeah, you know what, I really want to sell to another individual, someone who I can, again, look in the whites of their eyes and I can say, look, I need you to do, what coaching would you give that seller yeah. uh, in order to consummate a successful transaction? Yeah, cool. So, so there's two things, two things they need to do. So point number one, and we talked about it like 10 minutes ago, uh, they need to dress their business up so that it's very, very attractive for somebody to buy. So really think about that transfer of value. Make your business really kind of best in class. And, and as an owner, you can't be in the business day to day running that business. When, when I, the first question I ask every seller that I talk to is if, if they were to take a four week vacation with no cell phone or internet, what would their business look like when they return? And typically it's, well, it would be in, in a mess, right? Because I'm, I'm there, I got to take care of everything. Well, then unfortunately, that lowers your valuation or at the very least, the buyer is going to want you to stick around for an extended period of time. And then you're getting into kind of earnouts, which I actually don't like as a tool for deals. Um, 
But uh, so that's the first piece of advice. And then, and then the second piece of advice I would give is, is you know, and you, you and I talked about this last time when, when we chatted, um, the pull, right? So one of the things I always talk about with sellers is figure out what you're going to do. In the, you call it the pull, I call it the afterlife. What are you going to do once you've sold this company, right? Have you got a plan uh, for the rest of your life? And I've, I've had deals collapse at the closing table because the sellers sat down to sign the contract and thought, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? Like, I can't do this. I don't have a life plan for myself. And then the other thing I think about if I'm a seller is, again, and you mentioned it, realize there are three different types of, of buyer, right? You've got an individual who they're going to protect your legacy, look after your customers, and treat the business with respect. They're going to offer the probably the lowest valuation because they're at the mercy of the capital markets. They're only going to buy the business to the level that the bank or the investor is going to underwrite the deal at. Then you've got private equity. Uh, the way private equity typically works, as you know, they'll buy 50 to 75% of the company up front. So that's a nice cash out event for, for the owner. But then the owner's got to stick around for a period of time until the, the new financial buyer can put in its own management team. That might be three years. And what I found with that is that doesn't really work well because let's say you're a business owner and you've been the commander-in-chief of that company for 20 years, right? All of a sudden, let's say you're 60 years old. All of a sudden, you've got a 25-year-old Harvard MBA private equity investor that's now telling you what to do. So you've gone from being an employer to an employee, and a lot of sellers, they can't deal with that. And, and I understand. I've had it, right? I've had it. I, I owned, so my coaching company, um, Dealmaker Wealth Society, uh, I started that from my loft office in England seven, eight years ago, built it up. I sold it to a, a billion dollar corporate in the US. And for nine months, I had a boss. And it's the worst nine months of my life. COVID saved me. So I didn't have to go over there all the time to kind of help them. But then I ended up buying that business back uh, for a dollar anyway. Um, so they, they ruined it. But anyway, that, that, that's another story for another day. So private equity buyers, I think, whilst it might be a, a palatable deal structure for a seller to you know, take somebody off the table, stick around for a bit longer if they, if they want to, but then they've got to go through that mindset shift of, well, I've now got a boss. I answer to somebody. I have a board. They can kick me out whenever they want. That's something to think about. And then... So that they'll pay. So if an individual will pay the lowest, private equity is in the middle. The guys that pay the most are the strategic buyers. So they're not really at the mercy of the capital markets per se, although they'll have their own lines of credit and their own cash that they can deploy. They're looking for synergies. So they're looking at a business and thinking, well, how can we leverage that business into what we already do? Do they have customers that we can't get to? Do they have a product or a service that we don't have? Is the human capital in that business called an aqua hire that we can bring into our organization? Are they in a location or a country or a market that it's going to cost us five years and millions of dollars to penetrate? We can buy that and shortcut that, that journey. Um, but typically with strategic buyers as a seller, 
you're really at the mercy of, of what they want to do with that business. And as I mentioned before, some sellers are totally fine with that, right? They're in it for, for the money and, and that's absolutely fine. But a lot of sellers, they're not. They want to make sure that the, it's the right buy, it's the right partner for them. And, you know, they, they're going to love and nurture that business throughout its next season. You know, it's tennis season in the Warlow household. We we watch a lot of tennis in our house for some reason. And I think of the term unforced errors, uh, where a player just m- makes a bad shot, uh, not because they're forced to, but just because they do. What are the unforced errors that business owners make in negotiating with an individual buyer? The people that you coach are the buyers. And I'd be curious to know, what are the... What are the war stories or unforced errors you see the, the owners making in those conversations? Yeah, so there's several. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on a few. I, I, think, I think the first thing is we talked about valuation being a four-legged stool. I, I think oftentimes not really understanding their own valuation. Sometimes their, val- their real valuation is lower than what they think. In other cases, their valuation is a lot higher than you think. So, uh, so I recently acquired an econ company, um, that had phenomenal profitability. And, and I was able to buy that business really for kind of pennies on the dollar, just because, um, I sense real desperation in the owners to kind of sell, uh, you know, but I've got shareholders that I'm fiduciously responsible for. So I've got to do the right deals. I kind of felt for those guys because, uh, if I'd have been working on the sell side, you know, I, I I could have made them an extra ten million bucks probably um, as as the broker selling that business. So I think understanding value, I think horror stories in um, business owners just not being ready. So we've talked about transfer of value. Let's call that business attractiveness. Oftentimes, business owners don't get ready. They don't get ready personally. We've talked about that after. Uh, yeah, kind of afterlife that pull, yeah. but they don't get ready um, in terms of getting all the ducks in a row. You know, they don't set up a data room. They don't get all of their tax returns in a row. They don't get all their legal do- documents in a row because whoever's buying your business, uh, they're going to do a certain amount of due diligence. Um, so it's getting all that ready. And then I think a lot of times it's sellers not getting the right advisory team around them, having a, a tax advisor. That can, and you got to start that process way ahead of time. I think for me, if you're selling a company, you want to do it properly. I think it takes at least a year, if not 18 months to do it properly. So get your team on board that the, the minute you wake up and say, you know what? I want to sell this thing. It's probably going to be 18 months from now before someone's going to cut you a check and you've got to go through that planning process, you know, get a, Get a wealth planner or a tax advisor on board. You know, get your CPA involved to start looking at you know your ad backs and your take backs and cleaning up your books and giving a buyer a really kind of clean data set. Um, you know, getting your attorney on board, right? You know, figuring out um, am I best to sell my assets or am I best to sell my equity? Right? Buyers always want to buy assets because you get a step up in basis, right? Um, but for sellers, it's a lot more tax efficient uh, to sell the, the stock in the company. But then for a buyer, 
then you've got to do a lot more due diligence because you're inheriting all the liabilities that the business has, not just now, but, but back into, into the future. Um, so it's having all those conversations and then figuring out for yourself as a seller, you know, number one, who's the perfect buyer for me? Are they an individual? Are they a financial buyer? Are they a strategic buyer? Then number two, what type of deal do I want to do? Do I want a deal where I get all my cash at close? Yeah, I'm going to pay tax on that, but then is that going to sustain my retirement? Or am I open to a more uh, creative deal where I can get maybe some of the cash at close, but then I get income? And then am I able to secure that note against the business so that if something goes wrong, I'm able to take that business back, which is what I did, um, and and you know go and go and sell it to somebody else. I want to just explore that very briefly before I let you go. You mentioned there are one out of seven deals or so that the structure would be, uh, you know, five hundred grand up front, and then you know take the rest of it over a ten-year period, and yeah. you would have a lien on the business. Yeah. Uh, describe that. You, you would be in if you weren't paid your your money, you would be entitled to take the business back, yeah. correct? Yeah, so imagine, so all the seller's doing in that deal structure is taking the place of the bank, right? So let, let, let's, say, let's say you were selling a company that's valued at, so let, let's say you're doing, um, let's say you're doing a million dollars a year in profit and you're happy to sell to me for a, for a four times multiple, right? So that, that's a $4 million deal. And I said to you, okay, well, what if I paid you $6 million a year, or $6 million in total, but I, but I pay you over 10 years. I pay you $600,000 a year for 10 years. So me as the owner, new owner, I'm going to get $400,000 a year of that cash flow, and you're going to get that $600,000, right? So you're technically the bank that's lending me the money to buy your business. Now, like a bank would take a lien over the business if they were funding it, and the bank would um, provide me with covenants, which, as you know, are the financial rules that I need to adhere to to keep my loan in good standing. You just offer the same things to the seller. So I would say to you, right, John, I'm going to give you $6 million. I'm going to pay you $600,000 a year, which is $50,000 a month. Um, you get a full lien over the business. So if I miss a payment, if I miss a payment and that's not rectified within seven days, you have the legal right to take the ownership back of the company. Even if it's nine years and 11 months later and I miss that payment, you have a legal right to take that business back from me, right? And then the second thing I would do is say, well, okay, I'm going to give you a performance guarantee, which is like a covenant in reverse. So I'm going to say, hey, we're never going to dip below a million dollars a year in EBITDA. Um, I'm never going to go below $300,000 of cash in the business. And there might be four or five other conditions. So I'm going to give you that performance guarantee. And then you're able to track that. You, you'll get access to the bank account. You'll get access to the accounts. You'll have an oversight over the business like a bank would do or an investor. And then if I breached any of that, you would have the right to take the business back. So what that does, people think those deals, all the risk is with the seller. It's actually not. The risk is shared between buyer or seller because if I mess up, you can come and take the business back, right? You might not want to, 
but you have that you have that right because if, if you do an SBA deal and you partner with Live Oak or, or Chase and they're putting the capital in and you screw up in that deal, the bank's going to come and take the business, right? It's exactly the same thing. So the owner, the seller in that instance, just becomes the bank. Carl, I'm so grateful for you spending an hour with me, educating me on the uh, pros and cons of an individual buyer. I am thrilled to learn more about this. Um, for folks who want to reach out to you and learn more, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So at Carl Allen Official, that's my Instagram channel and my YouTube channel. I post loads and loads of content in there. And then on Instagram, they can message me and uh, yeah, I, I chat on there, you know, quite a lot. So all roads lead from there, as they say. <laughs> Carl, thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Carl. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support this podcast, I'd encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. As a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full episode between John and Carl, be sure to head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms that you may not be as familiar with, be sure to visit Carl's episode page over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.